Glad you can make it out this morning, the Sunday before Christmas. A big thanks to everybody that helped out here. A busy week this week with uh, doing the Angel Tree gifts and the Christmas meals. Thank you to everybody that helped out with that. If you have any questions concerning that, Nancy's back in the office taking care of that right now. Also, a big thanks to everybody helped out with car care ministry yesterday. What a blessing that was. And just keep the outreach today and uh, Hamler and prayer. Really excited about that. Love that idea of just getting God's word out to people and really representing Jesus Christ. So please keep those things in prayer for the Lord's hand to be upon that. So, But we're going to continue our study here through Matthew chapter 2. Let's do the smart thing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in this very busy week, we just want to stop here and just really focus on you and just focus on what this means and what this represents, Lord, what this week does. You, Lord, it's all about you. Help us to keep our heart, mind, and soul focused on you. And as we are very busy this week with family get-togethers and activities, help us to never lose sight of you. And, Lord, also help us be an opportunity as we run into friends and family members that may not know you to represent Christ as your ambassadors. And we lift this up in your name. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 2. We started our study in Matthew here a few weeks ago, and we've been doing the Christmas messages here through Matthew. First week, Matthew chapter 1, we talked about Joseph and the very unique character that Joseph is. He doesn't get a lot of credit here during the Christmas season. And we talked about the word for Joseph was obedience. Remember, put yourself in Joseph's position. You're a teenage boy. You've known Mary probably your whole life. You're betrothed. You're getting ready to get married. And she comes to you and says that she's pregnant. But don't worry, it's God's. It's, that's tough. So Joseph was obedient, and that's what we talked about. Now, last week we introduced the uh, chief priests and the scribes and Herod and the wise men and how they all reacted to the birth of Christ differently. Herod reacted with hostility, with anger. The wise men reacted with worship. They came solely to worship. They wanted nothing from Jesus but just to worship him. We talked about what a wonderful picture that is of hopefully us, of just wanting to worship Christ. But then the priests and the scribes, they're the ones that knew Micah 5.2. They're the ones that knew where the Messiah was to be born. They're the ones that told the wise men where the Messiah was to be born. But yet they would not travel the five, six miles to Bethlehem to go see them. And we talked about the danger of indifference. That danger of knowing the truth, but almost plateauing in your walk with the Lord, becoming comfortable in that. So today we're going to finish up Matthew chapter 2 and finish up this Christmas story, if you will. And once again, Joseph kind of takes center scene. And I like this because in Luke, Mary takes center scene. Jesus, rightfully so, takes center scene. But what you see here in Matthew is you see this obedience of Joseph again. That's something we can learn, really learn from. So let's pick it up in verse 13. We're going to repeat a few of the verses we went through last week and then hopefully finish up chapter 2. It says in Matthew 2, verse 13, Now when they had departed, meaning the wise men, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, where there was until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled all which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go out to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. 
Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. So we had an opportunity to hear to see how Jesus ends up in Nazareth and becomes Jesus of Nazareth, which sets us up real nice for next week as we talk about John the Baptist. Now, Joseph. Every time the Lord wants to speak to Joseph, it's in a dream. Matthew 1, verse 20, appears to him in a dream, saying, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Verse 13, there's another dream. Take the child, go to Egypt. Verse 19, hey, you can leave Egypt now, come back. Verse 22, why don't you go stay in Galilee and Nazareth? Every time we see the Lord speaking to Joseph, it's in a dream. It almost reaches a point of, do you think Joseph was ever afraid to go to sleep? Because every time he slept, there was something going on there. One thing about the dreams, though, is we have to look once again at Joseph's obedience. Remember, Joseph is obedience. Take a look here real quick. Verse 13, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Now look at verse 14. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. By night. His obedience was immediate. Immediate. Okay, can you imagine being in Joseph's position? It's already been crazy. I mean, this has got to be the craziest year of anybody's life. You're planning on getting married, and if you know anything about New Testament, or I should say even Old Testament, Joseph is preparing a house for his wife. It's probably going to be a house off of his parents' house. So that's what he does for this year while they're betrothed or engaged. They're technically legally married. They have not just been one yet. So he's building this house. He's planning this house. Mary comes to him. You know, I'm going to have a child. God's appearing to him in a dream. And now we're going to Bethlehem because of the census. We have a baby in a manger. Now there's wise men, kings from the east are coming and they're giving us gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So finally, maybe life is settling down a little bit. And all of a sudden, a dream. Go to Egypt. Go to Egypt. Now, you know, my wife and I, we have a full house. We've moved before with kids. I'm telling you right now, if I'd wake my wife up at 3 a.m. and say, the Lord appeared to me in a dream and we're supposed to move and we're moving now. She'll say, I'll take the judgment, I'm going back to bed. That's what she would say. (laughs) Joseph, in obedience, he goes, verse 14, that night. That night. They grab their possessions, they grab their stuff, and he goes. That's obedience. And not only that is obedience for Joseph. Verse 19, go back. What does he do? Verse 21, then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. Do you ever think that Mary got to the point of every time Joseph lays down to go to sleep, hey, we're moving? Obedience. So I started praying about this. I tried to take the lesson. I tried to pray it into my life. Lord, am I obedient? Am I obedient like Joseph? You know, my first response is, yeah, yeah, I'm obedient. If the Lord asks me to do something, I'll do it. Then I started really looking at this definition of obedience. Would I leave that night? No, I'd probably tell Dawn in the morning, and I'd probably get the kids together, and I'd say, guys, hey, in the next couple weeks, we're moving to Egypt, so I want you guys to start packing stuff up. 
See, this is the problem. Our definition of obedience is really not the biblical definition of obedience. See, obedience, according to the Bible, is when God says, go, you go. When God says, stop, you stop. Our definition of obedience is, Lord, I hear you, and I will obey when it's convenient for me. And a lot of our obedience in the world is based on that, right? I use this example all the time. What's the speed limit? 55. But if I talk to some of you, what's the speed limit? Well, they won't pull you over for anything less than 60. Well, wait a second. What's the speed limit? Well, they won't pull you over. That's what we do. We have these different definitions of obedience. And I am not picking on any parents. I promise you, please listen. Look, I promise I'm not thinking of any specific family. But we have designed this system of obedience with kids where we do like the one, two, three counting thing, right? So the kids know what? If mom says, Billy, come here, Billy's already knowing. I got three seconds, man. One, Billy. Two, Billy's finally, yeah, she's almost about to say three. Obedience then. We have this delayed obedience and we think it's obedience. We see Joseph in the middle of the night. He gets up, he grabs his wife, he grabs his young child, and he says, We're going. We're going. What an example of obedience. What do we do nowadays? The Lord lays it on our heart to, to get in the Word. Yeah, I'll get to that. Go share Christ. Oh, I'll try to. Maybe you should get involved. I will when the schedule allows. We can learn a lot from Joseph of just this plain out obedience. When God says go, we go. And I'm just going to tell you right now, just, just really honest with you. If the Lord has laid something on your heart and he's asked you to do it, you will have joy and peace when you obey. If you choose not to walk in that obedience, you will be in this miserable state of conviction of I should, followed by I want to, but I don't want to, just obey. And as we mentioned with Joseph two weeks ago, obedience is joy. Jesus said, if you know me, if you love me, keep my commandments. Part of that keeping his commandments is that obedience to him. Now, we can learn about obedience through Joseph. What else can we learn from Joseph? The Lord likes to speak to us at night. This isn't really unique to Joseph. Obviously, Daniel had a lot of dreams and visions. You see this in other places. But this is really quite extreme here. Let's talk about this idea of night and sleep. Let's go through a tour of Psalms. Can you go with me real quick to Psalm 3? Why does the Lord like to speak to us at night? Psalm chapter 3. Got a few verses here. We're just going to work our way through Psalms a little bit. I think night is so important in our walk with the Lord. We live in a world and a society where there is never quiet. Never quiet. You, you get in your car, generally you turn the radio on. You get home, you generally turn the TV on. If you have a house full of people and kids, there's always noise, there's always activity. And even if you're not around a radio or a TV, we generally carry our cell phones with us and they're always dinging, they're always beeping, they're always buzzing. We live in a world and society where this idea of the sound of silence really does not exist anymore. We can't find it. I know for me, sometimes it just happened, I think it was Saturday, just yesterday. I needed to make a phone call for somebody, so I looked at all the rooms in her house. No one was in the kitchen. I go in the kitchen. A couple seconds later, someone's in the kitchen. I go in my bedroom. Someone goes into my bedroom. There's just no quiet place. That's why I think the example that Jesus set in Mark 1 is so important. The Bible says he always went to an isolated place to spend time alone with the Lord. If Jesus himself went to go spend time alone with God the Father, what an example it's set for us. So why does the Lord like to use night? Because it's one of the few times in our world where it's quiet, it's calm, it's dark, and we can focus on him. So why do you think the enemy always attacks sleep? 
Over the years, you would not believe how many times people come up to me and I say, hey, is there anything I can pray for you? I'm just having a hard time sleeping at night. Now, why is that such a big deal? Because that sleeping at night, we know the physical, it rejuvenates us, we know all that type of stuff. If you're not sleeping at night, you get up in the morning, you don't want to face the day. And guess what happens if you don't want to face the day? You're probably not thinking about spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're not getting up in the morning and saying, hey, I'm ready, let's go take on the forces of darkness and proclaim Jesus. You're stumbling out of bed. You meant to get up earlier and do some time in the Word, but man, it's tough, it's rough. And then when you go to bed at night, you can't sleep, and so you're already agitated and worked up because you know you can't sleep. And so therefore, it just creates a cycle, and it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. That's why sleep can be so tough. So it's amazing how many passages in the Bible are all about sleep. Look here in Psalm 3. Psalm 3, verse 5. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. I'm going to go to bed at night knowing that Isaiah says that my God does not sleep nor slumber, and so I don't have to worry about anything tonight. I can lay down and sleep and awake, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousand people. See, here's the problems with the sounds of silence. When you're laying in bed at night, your mind can't shut down. What did I not get done today? What should I have gotten done today? What do I need to do tomorrow? So you go to bed already worked up rather than just laying in bed there saying, Lord, you're amazing. And I just love you. How about Psalm 4? Let's go Psalm 4 verse 8. I will both lie down in peace and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. You serve a God that neither sleeps or slumbers, and he will be with you. And it's that quiet, calm, dark, where the Lord likes to move and speak. And what a blessing it is that we can lay there knowing that our Father is everything under control. One of my kids really struggles with this idea of going to bed. And so when we go in at night, we tuck him in, we say goodnight, we're going to bed, we pray, etc. Dad, are you going right to bed? No, I'm going to stay up for a little bit. Okay, will you check on me before you go to bed? Yeah, I'll I'll check on you, buddy, before I go to bed. Now, on those nights when I'm really tired and I'm going to go to bed first, that rocks his little world. Because his safety, his father, is going to bed before him. Can you imagine lying down at night and, oh, Lord, I just want to thank you for the day. And God says, sorry, James, I'm going to bed. You know, uh, can you stay up tonight and take care of the world? Because I'm just, you know, no. Your father never sleeps or slumbers. And I can even remember as a kid, I can still remember as a kid, being in my bedroom at night and just having my door cracked open a little bit and just knowing my mom and dad were out there and they'd have like the TV on. And there was just that, that peace. I was probably about 25 at the time. And there was just that peace, <laughs> that peace of knowing they're there. And I don't have to worry. And, and what I'm trying to tell you is this, that same peace is there because your heavenly father does not sleep nor slumber. So you can lie down in peace. I have slept and I awoke for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands. Because God's with you. Why does the Lord like to use that time of night? Because it's quiet, it's calm, it's dark. And we talk about this. Look at Psalm 16. Look at Psalm 16, verse 7. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. It's almost like the Lord says, James, you finally shut off the radio. You finally shut off the TV. The phone's not dinging or ringing. You have some quiet. Let's talk. Your heart is finally quiet enough for me to speak to. Psalm 17, verse 3. 
You have tested my heart. You have visited me in the night. I keep a pen and a paper beside my bed at night. If the Lord has something that he wants to give me, I can just wake up, turn over, write it down. If I'm laying in bed at night and one of you comes to my mind, I can pray. And if it's really heavenly heart, I'll just write your name down. If I wake up last night, I woke up at 3 a.m. And it's one of those where you're like, you're awake. And you're like, what just happened? You're awake. And I just started mentally going through the list. Who did the people, who did I say, I'm going to pray for you? And I just start, you know, you just start praying. It's that quiet, calm, dark, focus on him. And I just want to encourage you. If you're one of those people that have a hard time sleeping at night, go to those verses in Psalm 3. Go to those verses in Psalm 4. If you're one of those people where your mind can't shut down at night because there's always one more thing to do, look at the blessing that God is trying to say here. The night season is where he wants to sometimes move and work in your life. And I really encourage you before you go to bed. I'm biased. I love the book of Psalms. Read a psalm before you go to bed. And just read that psalm and just think, you know what? I can sleep tonight because guess what? Dad's still up. I have nothing to worry about. See, in that quiet, that calm, that darkness, we can focus on Him. And speaking of focusing on Him, did you catch here in chapter 2, the focus is on, well, it's not Joseph, even though we think it is, the phrase young child is mentioned nine times. Nine times in Matthew chapter 2. The young child. The focus is really on Him. He, it's almost interesting. It's almost like Jesus takes backstage in this chapter. Well, we got the wise men. We got to talk about Herod and the massacre of the innocents. We got the chief priests. We got the scribes. Uh, we got Joseph. And if we're going to go to Luke, we're going to talk about the shepherds. We're going to talk about Mary. It's almost like the Lord just very quietly, very calmly wants to remind us in Matthew chapter 2, nine times, young child. It's all about the young child. Because the purpose is the focus is on him. I tell you, one of the most simplest verses in the entire Bible... And we can almost have a tendency to make this simple verse too complex. Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. We have to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that's kind of what we see here in Matthew chapter 2. The focus really is the young child. Seek him first. Now you guys know this. These next few days are going to be crazy. And I was going through the Christmases we have. We have one on Christmas Eve. We have two on Christmas Day. We have one the day after Christmas. And I, and I always call it the Hanukkah of Christmas. It just kind of keeps on, you know, going. And it's easy to get caught up in stuff. But are we really seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? And, and you know what? It's not just at Christmas. We're getting to that time of year where we start talking about New Year's resolutions. And you have guys heard me teach before. I'm not a big fan of New Year's resolutions. But what would happen if your New Year's resolution for 2016 would just be really simple? You're going to seek first the kingdom of God. And that's all. Well, no, more detail. No, no, no more detail. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Just every day when you get up, Lord, I want to seek you first today. How can I be a light and a witness for you? How can I grow in my walk in relationship with you? Lord, how can I know you deeper and make you known to the people I work with and live with? I just want to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And what's the catch when you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? And all these things shall be added unto you. The Lord will take care of the rest of the details. We just need to seek him first. And I think what you see here behind the scenes in Matthew 2, the young child. The young child. That's the point of Christmas is God came into the world to die on the cross for our sins. You know, a few years ago we did a Christmas message and we talked about how Christmas is really the first step and a 33-year-long journey for a man to die on the cross. And that's really what it is. 
is the, it's the focus is the young child. He came into this world. I was thinking of that passage in Corinthians where it says that he who knew no sin became sin for us. Isn't that what we're talking about? Jesus, who knew no sin, came into this world and took the sin of the world upon him. Because it was a debt we couldn't pay. And you see that hinted here. Why did they go to Egypt in verses 14 and 15? Well, the Old Testament teaches us that in 2 Kings 25, when Babylon came and was overtaking Jerusalem, a bunch of the Jews fled to Egypt. They didn't want to go to Babylon, so they fled to Egypt. It talks about that in the book of Jeremiah as well. Most people believe that at the time of this writing here, there's probably about a million Jews living in Egypt. So there was a very strong Jewish community in Egypt. So it would kind of make sense to go to Egypt. But you know what? There's a deeper symbolism. In the Bible, Egypt always represents the world. Always represents the world. So when you see here in verse 15, out of Egypt I called my son the fulfillment of Hosea 11 verse 1. God called Jesus literally, physically out of Egypt. See, but here's the catch. God had to come into Egypt to get us out of Egypt. Because Egypt represents the world. God had to come into the world to get us out of the world. He had to. And so Jesus, what we celebrate at Christmas is the young child that decided to come into the world to get us out of the world. He came in to lead us out. And what a beautiful picture that is when you stop and you think about it. See, a lot of times when we think of the world as believers, we try to stay away from it, and rightfully so. We're not supposed to be part of this world. As believers, we're called to be different. We should be dressing different than the world. We should be speaking differently than the world. We should be entertaining ourselves differently from the world because we see what the world does, and that's not what we are. We're called to a different moral standard through Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean we run to the hills, build a fort, and just wait for the return of Jesus. No. We still are in this system to be a light and a witness, but with the, always with the understanding that my Savior is going to pull me out of Egypt. He's going to pull me out of this world, and Christmas is the first step of Him doing that. And that's what makes it so amazing, that God was willing to come into Egypt to get us out of Egypt. He was coming, willing to come into the world to get us out of the world. And not just get us out of the world, He decided to go live in Nazareth. Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. Now, we're so used to that. Jesus of Nazareth. That just makes perfect sense. If you were living 2,000 years ago, Nazareth meant nothing to you. In fact, Nazareth was so almost looked down upon that in John, when they told Nathaniel that it was Jesus of Nazareth, remember Nathaniel's response? Has anything good ever come out of Nazareth? That's how looked down upon Nazareth was. A lot of people believe during the time of Jesus, Nazareth had about maybe 400, 500 people to maybe at the most 2,000 people, at the most. Nazareth in old uh, history is not even mentioned. Now, it's not that there's a debate on whether Nazareth existed. They knew it existed. The point was Nazareth was such an unremarkable, insignificant town, there was not even a reason to talk about it. It was Nazareth. Now, as you leave this church today and you go home, and you drive through Malenta, Hamler, and Deschler, you're driving through Nazareths. See, now to us, it's a big deal, right? This is where we're from. This is everything to us. But in this world of 7 billion people, we're all Nazareths. Now, let's build on this point here for a second. Please hear out this teaching point before you all leave, okay? You're not important. If you would just disappear today and die, you would have a group of friends and family that would mourn for you and weep for you. 
but the loss of you would not make a dent in this world. It wouldn't. We would not lower flags to half-staff on your behalf. Schools would not be canceled. Work would continue to keep going. You're insignificant. You're unremarkable. Now, me, on the other hand. I'm just kidding. I just wanted to throw that out there. That wasn't spirit-led. Sorry. Um, We're all insignificant. We're all unremarkable. But now, here are the teaching point. That's what makes it so remarkable that Jesus wanted to come for us. It's so remarkable that Jesus would come for somebody so unremarkable. It's so significant that Christ would come for people that are so insignificant. It's so amazing that Jesus was raised in Nazareth. That was nothing because Jesus came for the nothings. That's what's so amazing about this. Go with me real quick to 1 Corinthians 1. See, we like to convince ourselves how important we are. Well, what does the Bible say about us? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 1, starting verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. The base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. How does God describe us here, starting in verse 26? I'm not wise, I'm not mighty, I'm not noble. Verse 27, I'm foolish, I'm weak, I'm shameful. Verse 28, I'm debased, I'm despised. I'm completely unremarkable and insignificant, which makes it even more remarkable and significant that God came to die for me. It's amazing. So we use that phrase a lot, right? Somebody's one in a million. You ever thought that out? If you're one in a million, there's 300 million people in the United States. That means there's 300 people just like you. There's a thousand of you in China. In the whole world, there's 7,000 of you. There's 7 billion people in this world. We're kind of unremarkable. We're kind of insignificant. We don't have to have extra security at church because you're here today because you're so amazing. There's going to be no cars and and photographers waiting for you at your house when you get home because people just want to get a picture of you. Do you go to Walmart and do people ask you for your autograph? No. No, I'm not picking. That's what makes it even more remarkable and significant that God did this for us. Because I am, I'm not noble, I'm not mighty, I'm not wise, I'm foolish, I'm debased, I'm shameful. And still, there was a young child born in Bethlehem that went to Egypt for a while, came out of Egypt, was raised in Nazareth, that went to the cross and died on the cross for my sins. And that's what makes Christmas so absolutely amazing. It's remarkable that God would care for people that are so unremarkable and so insignificant. And that's what I love about Christmas. Now, with that being said, what's our response to this? I hope our response is, let's put all of our lessons together here over the last few weeks. I hope our response is, first off, Remember we went through the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1 and we saw how God likes to work through sinners and he likes to show them grace. I hope we realize that we're sinners in need of grace. 
Because that's what it's all about. We're all sinners in need of grace. And the only answer is through Christ. There's a debt I cannot pay. And that currency that gets me into heaven is only the blood of Christ. And that's what we need to remember. I hope we can learn from Joseph's obedience that we're supposed to be obedient too. I hope we can learn from the wise men of last week that we're here to worship. We're here to give God the glory created for his glory and his purpose. And I hope we can learn again, once again, from Joseph today. When God says, go, we go. And we can learn that God went into the world to take us out of the world. We can learn that God cares for the insignificant and the unremarkable. I hope we can put this all together and then go to Matthew 6, 33 and say, Lord, I want to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Lord, I want to. And, and as I get up starting today, Lord, how can I seek you first today? How can I seek you first in my finances? How can I seek you first in my relationships with others? How can I seek you first in my interests? How can I seek you first in everything I do? Because I am unremarkable. I'm insignificant. I am Nazareth. But yet, you still want to be with me. And Lord, I just want to love you. Because really what Christmas is, it's really us reacting to God's unconditional love towards us. And that's what makes it so absolutely amazing that God would care for us and that God would just absolutely love us. And that's what I want our focus to be as we move on, not even through this week, but let's make this our focus through everything we do. Because next week, as we get into Matthew chapter 3, we're going to be introduced to John the Baptist. And Jesus has this amazing comment about John the Baptist. No greater man ever born of a woman. That's a pretty big statement. And the main point we're going to talk about John the Baptist is pretty straightforward. Why was John the Baptist so amazing? His whole life was pointing people towards Jesus Christ. You want an amazing life? Point people towards Jesus Christ. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Point people towards Christ. Walk in his grace because we're insignificant, unremarkable sinners. Walk in his grace. Be obedient to where he leads. Worship like the wise men. Oh, my goodness, it all comes together. Now there's purpose. It's not just going to work and coming home. It's not just making sure the bills are paid and the lawn is mowed. There's a deeper divine purpose to my life. And now that I know that deeper divine purpose, Lord, that's what I want. And that's what I'm going to do is be a light and a witness for you in all that I say and all that we do. Jim, if you want to come forward here for the final song.